soon the last Sunday of the year will be over and we will move into the new year. And that's the time when some people make New Year resolutions. I'm reminded of the man who said, in January, I made a resolution to lose 15 pounds by the end of December. Why must Christmas festivities come so close to the year's end? Only 20 pounds to go. And what is a New Year resolution anyway? Something that goes in one year and out the other. Someone said, I've kept my resolutions for the whole year. Yes, I kept them in a bedroom drawer. In these days of transition from this year to the next, I've been thinking that for most of us, we will have been at a lot of church services during the past year. And we resolved in those Sunday services, Lord, we want to live an effective and fruitful Christian life. We dedicated ourselves to the Lord, didn't we? And then we rededicated ourselves the next Sunday. And then we rededicated ourselves. But looking back on a year of Sunday meetings, has it been information? without transformation? Has it been hearing followed by resolutions but without lasting change? A 14-year-old girl had a whiteboard on her bedroom wall. Her mother smiled when she saw a couple of notes her daughter had made for herself. One, do history assignment by Wednesday. Two, change personality by Friday. Well, a personality makeover is a great idea, but how? Let's talk about this, because don't we want our church-going experience for the new year to change us for the better? So, what is needed to make it so? And I can't think of a better passage in the Bible to help us do this than Galatians 3, verses 16 to 25. So let's read from verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I smiled when I heard of an elderly couple walking past an animal pet store. A parrot was in a cage outside and asked, Do you know what? And the man replied, What? And the parrot said, You're ugly and your wife is fat. Well, the man complained to the shop owner, and he said to the parrot, Say that again, and it's into the back of the shop for you. As the elderly couple walked past the shop again, the parrot, seeing them, said, Do you know what? The man said, What? And the parrot said, You know what? Well, living the Christian life, we know what. I mean, we've heard so much in church services that sometimes we know the preacher's next point before he has arrived at it, and by the time he's finished, we're sure that we could have said it better than him anyway. But we are not changing for the better. What we read in Galatians 5 can help us. Its insights can change us for the better. But we need to understand two things which comes right out of this passage. The picture used and the process involved. Now three things are implied by the picture Paul uses and two in the process to get us growing spiritually. Concerning the picture, Christian change is invisible, inevitable, and it's internal. Look at the picture. And first, Christian growth is invisible. Have you ever wondered why Paul uses the picture of fruit? I mean, why doesn't he say the traits of the Christian life? Paul deliberately uses a metaphor of botanical growth. Jesus had used the same idea when talking about a vine and branches. Peter does the same when saying that a believer is born of the seed of the word of God. Why use botanical growth? Because spiritual growth is gradual. You've seen speeded up film of plants growing and it's fascinating, but in real time we know the growth isn't that obvious. So why does Paul talk about love, joy, peace and more as fruit? Because Christian growth is invisible. And it's invisible because it's gradual. We don't see dramatic change overnight. Yes, there are seasons in life when it happens more quickly. We may experience a spiritual springtime. But that follows a winter time. There's still life there, but it's more hidden. And this means for one person where spiritual growth is obvious, there will be others where it's just not. 
And therefore, we have to be patient with one another. We talk about growing pains, but most growth is not felt. We never feel growth. We can only measure it. A 16-year-old boy can probably run faster than when he was 14. But sit him down and say, hello, 16-year-old boy. Do you feel faster than when you were 14? Perhaps he's unsure, but he probably is. Another thing about growth is that we may be growing, but we can only tell when trouble comes. And this is why our New Testament says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We think, a year ago, I couldn't have handled that trial. When asked, do we feel stronger? We may think not, but we are. You see, growth is invisible and therefore often missed. Secondly, Christian growth is inevitable. What is the seed that is producing the fruit? This is not ordinary fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. If the seed of God's Spirit is in us, we will be changing. We will worry less, become a more loving person, be more patient, become wiser and able to face our troubles. Campbell Morgan was a church minister in London, close to Buckingham Palace. He and his wife had a vacation in Italy and they saw a big marble gravestone where an acorn had got into the grave and split the stone in half. How could it do that? Because it had life. And with the Spirit of God living in us, there is God's life there. So growth is inevitable. Let me underline, we are not saved by fruit. We are saved through faith by grace. A drowning man is rescued by a helicopter, winching him up to safety. And later he says, the rope saved me. Yes, but it was really the helicopter that saved him. The rope was what connected him. And Christ saves us. And it's our faith in him that makes the connection. We can put our faith in good works, our faith in our church, and that's not enough. Our faith must be in Christ. We are saved through faith, not fruit, but we're never, never saved by fruitless faith. And real faith brings Christ into our lives through the Holy Spirit, which inevitably leads to growth. And all this faces us with a hard question. Looking back over the past year, are we able to see that there has been some change for the better? That we did grow in grace, 
and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. A lady leaving a church service said to her husband, Do you think Mary is tinting her hair? He said, I didn't notice. She said, Did you see what Anne was wearing? It was a bit young for her, don't you think? He said, I didn't notice. And she said, A lot of good it does you to go to church. Well, what good does it do for us? Some of us have been Christians for years, haven't we? But there is still maybe a lack of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this person is not a Christian. I am saying we can't really know that we are if we are not changing. Growth is invisible but inevitable over time. With the Spirit in us, we should definitely grow because of what seed is in us. And it's important to note that change is internal. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, aren't we? And there is a difference between external and internal change. Keep throwing bricks on a pile, well, there is growth. But that's not organic growth. That's growth in quantity, not quality. It's not the way a child grows or the way fruit grows. It's not internal. It's not alive. It's mechanical. Classic examples are Martin Luther and John Wesley. Both did lots of religious activity, but it was an exterior without an interior. The outer commotion without the inner devotion. And there came a day when that changed. Something happened on the inside of their lives. No longer was it religious duties. It was a relationship dynamic. And the world got to know about it. Perhaps out of a desire to want to please family and friends, it leads us into church activities, let alone church services. But nothing has changed or is changing on the inside of our lives. To the Romans, Paul wrote, if the Spirit is in you, if, he doesn't assume that because he is writing to a church, that they are all authentic believers. Real Christian change is internal. It has to happen. Let's mark it down. The fruit of the Spirit is invisible. It grows gradually. It's inevitable because His presence in us must show itself. It's internal, not something we put on by our own efforts. And notice that Paul says the fruit, not fruits, of the Spirit is. Before a list of virtues are then given, the subject, do you see this, it's singular, but the outworking is varied. Paul did this on purpose, because there is one fruit with many flavours. So, 
let's step back and think about this. Don't we want to see in ourselves and in others around us people that are changing from being hard to being loving, from being grim to being joyful, from being stressed to being peaceful, from being impatient to being patient, from being callous to being kind, from being bad to being good, from being unreliable to being faithful from being harsh to being gentle and undisciplined to self-control. Don't we want that? Are we growing? There is no excuse if we are a believer and it's not happening because it can. And why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is an outcome of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit living in us. This fruit is his personality. And may I remind you that Jesus has no strong points because he had no weak points. So how could he have any strong points? His personality is completely balanced. And therefore, with Christ, by the Spirit living in us, it means his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has not made it easy for us to fail at living this fruitful and effective Christian life. We have the resource in this relationship. And this, of course, brings us to the big question. What will produce this change for the better in us? What process is involved? I've noticed that life coaches are becoming popular these days. They offer courses with taglines such as change your personality in 30 days. One even says change your personality without getting out of bed. We have something much better than that in Galatians 5. How do we develop good virtues and change for the better? Well, there are two steps summed up in two words. Crucifying and controlling. Let me explain. First, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Paul spelt that out to the church in Colossae. Put to death, therefore, what belonged to your earthly nature. Our faith in Christ has identified us with him in what he has done for us. We don't look forward to a penalty for our sin from God because Jesus came and took it in his crucifixion. But that doesn't mean that the presence of sin is no longer in our lives. We still have a sinful nature. One day it will go, but not now. So, becoming a true believer in Christ doesn't mean that the old life has no effect. But our present life need not be governed by our old selves. Kill off any attitude and action that stands opposed to what Christ stands for. 
no excuses. Face it down. It will be a battle, but by Christ's power within us, it's a battle that can be won. Now, have we grasped the implications of this? We are to be murderers. We are to put to death the attitudes and actions that oppose Christ's presence in our lives. You see, we have the power of self-determination, but we don't have the right. An airline pilot has the power to determine the plane goes into a mountain or over it, but he only has the right to take it over. And we by nature have the power to take our lives down, but we don't have the right. We belong to God now. We are indwelt by his presence. You know, this list of sins, Paul notes, is depressing. Even more so because it's not an exhaustive list. Churchgoers can be infected by the sin virus. That's S-I-N seriously in need. We may avoid the more gross sins listed, but we're not necessarily off the hook. What about selfish ambition? What about envy? That's part of the list. And I would like to skate over a couple of sins mentioned here as another part of the list, but I don't think I should at this season of the year. Drunkenness, and orgies. Drunkenness is excessive indulgence in alcohol. It weakens our control over actions and words. There is less excuse for the abuse of alcohol in our society today than in the Galatian society. Drinking wine in those days was almost essential with the bad water supply. No one today must drink. The alternatives are numerous and often healthier. The reason abuse of alcohol is such a problem is social pressure. Too many people think they'll stick out like a sore thumb if they ask for a non-alcoholic drink. But can't we drink without abuse? Certainly, and many do. Drinking is not in itself a spiritual issue. Drunkenness is. But drinking is certainly a social issue that must be examined carefully by Christian people. We must ask, is the minor enhancement of life that moderate use of alcohol provides worth the major risk of abuse that so frequently results? And then Paul mentions orgies. You see, rarely do these occur without alcohol. The lowering of natural inhibitions with alcohol is a prerequisite before many people will participate in immoral behaviour. And I must mention an implication of Paul's severe warning. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word is in the present tense and often means practice. This passage says that if our life is characterised 
by these acts of the sinful nature, if we're in an ongoing way practicing them, we will not inherit God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what profession we made. It doesn't matter what spiritual experience we say we had. If these kinds of deeds describe our ongoing lifestyle, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our attitudes and our actions contradict the profession we make that we have experienced the saving grace of God and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe anyone whose life is characterised by these acts of the sinful nature has the luxury of claiming to be a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not the one to judge whether he's saved, lost or just backslidden, but I do say that he has no right to claim he's a child of God when his life denies it. I have had individuals contact me who were living in gross sin, telling me, well, at least I know I'm a Christian. And I've had to say, I'm sorry, but you have no right to make such a claim while you're living like that. While the entire book of Galatians has emphasised and hammered home that we cannot inherit God's kingdom by works, verse 21 says that we can bar ourselves from God's kingdom by works. Good works, in other words, can't get us into heaven, but works of the sinful nature can send us to hell. And all around us are evil influences threatening to drown us in the actions of the sinful nature. But I find hope offered to us. The greatest thing about Christianity is a personal relationship with Christ that can turn our present habits into history. There is no life too gross and too filled with the acts of the sinful nature that Jesus Christ can't make a past tense out of it. The only person unredeemable is the one whose heart is too proud to seek God's forgiveness. So, belonging to Christ, we have crucified the sinful nature. We put to death the bad, but it's vital to note the second step in the process of changing for the better, the control of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells every true believer, but the Holy Spirit does not have control over every believer. And we have a daily choice. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. My wife Pauline was gifted with a lemon tree. She has pruned, fertilised, watered and fought insects by spraying. It's been in the house when frost threatens and in the garden when the sun will kiss it. And having done what she can, she waits for the lemons. So, using the picture Jesus gives us 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What are we doing to cultivate the life of Christ within us? Does our life need pruning through spiritual discipline? Do we need more of the water of the word of God? What about combating carnal blight by prayer? And how about warding off chilling frost with the warmth of Christian fellowship? We may be in for a bumper crop. Just note the graphic picture Paul uses in verse 17. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. Just as we desire after things, the spirit also desires after things. What does the spirit desire after? The spirit desires after Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And the Holy Spirit is the matchmaker, wanting to draw us to Christ. And to help us to see all that Christ has done, is doing and wants to do in our lives. And then because we have fallen in love with him, we fall in line with him. And having our minds set on what the spirit desires, what will happen? The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The Spirit is always saying, the reason you don't have life and peace is because your mind is not focused on all that Christ is and does. If our mind is set on what the Spirit desires, we will lust for Jesus. If someone asks, what did the preacher say today? You can say, he told us to lust more. But do explain a bit more, won't you? This is extreme language, yes, but it's Galatians 5 and Romans 8 language. The spirit and the flesh are both lusting. Listen to the spirit. Go after that which the spirit goes after. Fix our eyes on Jesus. When I was a church pastor, I had a trainee social worker asked to interview me for a project she was doing. One question was, what is your primary responsibility as a church minister? And I know that I shocked her with my reply at first. I said, my primary responsibility is to look after myself to look after my own spiritual life. You see, if I am not changing for the better, I am no use to anyone else. My daily priority must be constantly abiding in Christ and surrendering to his Lordship. I don't need more New Year resolutions. I don't need a change of circumstances. I don't need more information about how to be happy. I need 
the truth of Jesus in such a way that my desire for him becomes life-changing for me and through me for those in my circle of influence. Crucifixion and control. And as a result, fruit begins to grow. If we are granted another year of life and we come to the last Sunday, don't we want to look back and say, there has been change for the better? There has been spiritual growth? Well, let's make a good start, shall we, in moving in that direction. Let me give you a 12-word prayer for us to pray. And saying it and meaning it will be a launching pad into the new year with more than good resolutions. May I ask that every day for the week we make this our prayer? Pray, help me to love Jesus as much as the Spirit loves Jesus. Just 12 words. When God answers that prayer, what a lasting difference for the better it will mean. Help me to love Jesus as much as the Spirit loves Jesus. How about it?